Welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amaday, host World Poetry Open Mic, The Michael Amaday Show, author of more books than I should mention, musician, poet, and above all, creative entrepreneur. My collaborator and conspirator in this project is Clifford Brooks, founder of the Southern Collective Experience, host of Dante's Old South on NPR, poet and author of The Draw of Broken Eyes and World of Metaphysics, Exiles of Eden, and Athena Departs, The Gospel of a Man Apart. In this episode, Cliff and I interview Jim Reese. He's a poet, he's a writer, and he's so much more than that. Now, Cliff does a great job giving the biography at the beginning of the interview, so I'll hold back on that for now. But I just want to say before we get into it that this conversation carried a lot of weight. There's a lot of places we go to that uh, I think will be really useful and very interesting for, uh, for someone who's engaged in the idea of writing or creating for their livelihood, or at least for an expression of who they are. So, without any further ado, our interview with Jim Reese. Well, y'all, this evening we have Mr. Jim Reese, Associate Professor of English and Director of the Great Plains Writers Tour at Mount Marty College in Yankton, South Dakota. Reese's poetry and prose have been widely published, and he has performed readings at venues throughout the country, including the Library of Congress and San Quentin Prison. Reese's awards include first place in the 2018 Allen Ginsberg Poetry Awards, a 2018 Distinguished Achievement Award from Mount Marty College, and a Distinguished Public Service Award in recognition of his exemplary dedication and contributions to the Education Department at Federal Prison Camp Yankton. Jim Reese, how are you doing? You got among men. I'm good, thanks. That's a nice kind introduction. Well, I mean, honestly, like it's it's a it's a it's a it's an impressive it's just an impressive piece of this entire book uh, that we're here to talk about at least part of the time called Bone Chalk, and it's yeah. a it's a gorgeous book. And we before we started the show, we started talking about marketing. We'll get into that too. And I'm always a big harper on like and let you know make the book look good, you know. And I mean, I can't brag enough about the the, the hardback, the, the the dust jacket, and the binding. Uh, the the OCD in me is is very happy with your book, but the contents the contents are what sell it. Uh, so, before we get into bong talk, before we get into how it's made and, and the contents within it, give us some of your background, some of that stuff that's not on the book jacket. Who are you? Well, I'm just a guy from Nebraska. You know, uh, I uh, started writing. I don't know, you know, I've done a lot of interviews in the last couple of weeks, so it's always, and I've been listening to your guys' podcast, which I think is just really great and informative, and I really do like the idea of marketing, but, you know, people always say, well, where, when did you start writing and, and things like that? And, you know, I had a guitar when I was, I think I got my guitar when I was 14, and and uh, I was a rhythm guitar player for quite a while in different bands, and and um, I just wasn't that great, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I, wa- I wanted to be better. I just couldn't get my left hand to do what it wanted to. And uh, that was at a time when, you know, you were playing riffs as fast as you could. And, and uh, but one thing after being in some bands is I started writing some songs. And, and I think one of the coolest feelings I ever had early on was looking out into a crowd and seeing somebody sing a song or, you know, or lip sync in the song that you wrote. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I can do that. And I don't have to be in a room with five other guys with enormous egos. <laughs> I can just try to go at it alone and um, try to and work on my writing. So that's where it started. I had a notebook full of pretty cheesy song lyrics and love poems, and <laughs> I was desperately searching to share those with uh, anybody that would listen. Well, I mean, it, it's in, in the interviews, it's one of the questions I love to hit in, in magazine interviews is like, what is a question that you'd always, you've always wanted to be asked but never have been. Man, you're killing me here. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. You know, a question I've always wanted to be asked. I guess, you know, sometimes people want to know why you write. And now that I'm, you know, that's how it started. Mm -hmm. While I was writing and it was fun and exciting and it still is all, all that. And then you realize how much work it is if you really, really want to make it into cer- certain arenas. Mm-hmm. Um, so a question is now that I get, or I've thought about is why am I still writing? Maybe a question I ask myself, you know, what's the point? What am I trying to do? 
And it took me a while even, um, you know, when I got that job in prisons and stuff, I, uh, it was about four or five years that I, till I finally asked myself, you know, what am I doing here? I mean, it was cool to brag and say, Hey, I'm going to San Quentin. And, uh, I thought it was cool to tell people I'm working in prisons and, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me that, hey, this writing isn't just about you and talking about your life. This is really helping some families. Mm-hmm. And it's really helping some guys that are in prison. And once I realized that, I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. you know. And so now when I ask myself that, I often ask myself that when I have an idea. What's the purpose? Why am I doing this? What's the bigger reason? And you know, I hope I explained that a lot in these essays in Bone Chalk. I mean, I didn't explain it, but I mean, there was a reason for each of them. So that's a question, I guess, that I'm, I ask myself. Well, let me ask you, so why are you still doing it, Jim Reach? Well, I think I've noticed that, you know, and I, and I want to make my mark. You know, I want to leave something behind. I think we're in a time where the written word, unfortunately, is disappearing. You know, I mean, people write texts and they send emails sometimes. Um, But as far as literature and recording our stories or let's say letter writing, Mm -hmm. actually getting a letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's these are things that have disappeared a lot in the last five, 10 years. You know, so I think it's important to write our stories, whether it be poems or nonfiction or fiction. Now, Bone Chalk, uh, your book, it, it's it's about your time working in prisons, correct? Uh, the centerpiece essay is, yeah. Bone yes. Chalk is a, is a wide variety of essays. Anything from me um, being a college mascot for all the wrong reasons. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had school spirit, I guess, just like anybody else. But that's not why I did it. Um, you know, I thought, and, and that's, the, that's one of the essays. Or... Um, you know, the crime essay is one of the biggest pieces in the book, and that, that that's called 12 Years in Prisons and What Criminals Teach Me. But I've got Bone Chalk, the essay, is actually about uh, my father-in-law and just being a city kid and then marrying into a farm family and learning about all that. And, you know, my brother-in-laws and some people in the small town I lived in uh, called me Bucket Calf. And, uh, you know, I, but I believed in immersing myself in the story. So I was going to follow people around until I learned it um, and learned what I wanted to know or could could learn um, before I started writing about things. You know, I I guess that was a big theme in the book. I'm always this outsider kind of going into situations. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you call the book Bone Chalk? Tell us the story behind that. Um, you know, I was looking for a title and looking for different, it was going to be called My Life is Willie the Wildcat. Um, that was a title at one time, um, because that was one of the more popular essays. And then I had, you know, other ones, How to Become a Regular. And then I was reading a poem by Don Welch. And, uh, the poem is called Requiem for a Teacher. Yes, in the beginning of your book. Yeah. And then there's a, so I'm reading it and there's a stanza and it says, how many souls make up the inexhaustible winds? How many of them talk with their bones chalk? And uh-huh. a couple lines from that. And I thought, you know, all these stories are about me learning and experiencing things from these non-traditional teachers that aren't in classrooms. And, uh, and, and I think that's just such a neat thing. So when we go back to that original question, why am I writing? I think it's to record some of that, especially in this book, you know, how we can learn from each other and uh, just make, make the world and our lives a better place. Amade, what you got, boss? Let me pass it to you before I hog this whole hour. Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, Jim, thanks for taking the time to uh, to come and sit and talk with us. And, you know, hearing you talk to Cliff here and, and kind of hearing elements of, of how you're looking at your work now, you know, and as someone who's uh, been a teacher myself as well, I, I think there is there is something where it does have to be bigger than you. I, I think it's be, it would be very hard to be someone who teaches and have it be all about you because there's just, it's just, 
I, for me, it was it was funny. It's almost like all the coolness is beaten out of you at first. <laughs> you know, you've got to like, you're like, you know, they'll they'll make you not cool real fast. And um, but at the same time, it's the meaning. The meaning is there. But I, I loved the thing I really want to get at though is you were talking about non traditional teachers, and I I'm someone who believes that you can learn from really anybody that you you meet if you're if you open yourself to it, and you can. You sometimes it's learning what not to do, you know. But um, yeah, what is was there one or two people in particular that you can remember and you don't have to name names or you can change the names if you like, or however you want to take this. Was there one or two people that really stood out as non-traditional teachers to you during the time that you were working in in the prisons? Oh, when I started at the prison, um, I would think the biggest teachers that I had really were the guys in my classes. Um, I remember, so what's interesting about that essay, and let me get back to this, so hopefully I'll remember the question, but also the supervisor of education I had. Um, I've had multiple supervisor of educations, uh, of education there, and uh, the first one I had, I remember she said to me, hey, just remember one thing when you're in this classroom. She goes, if you remember, any of us could have wound up here after a few misdirected decisions, then you're going to do just fine. Yep. So... I took that to heart. Um, and then also that first year, see, we went to San Quentin, I think four or five years, kind of towards the beginning, we would go off and on, spend the weekend there, uh, looking at various classes so we could come back and incorporate some of the things that we learned. And they have their own newspaper there. It's a, you know, the population is 5,000 plus. And I was reading the newspaper that first time I was there and somebody had a quote that said, uh, you know, you can lock a person up and teach them a trade while they're in prison, and that's all fine and good. But what you have to do is help them come to terms with the emotional instabilities that brought them to prison. Because if you don't, you're just going to send an angry person right back out into society yeah. or, a confused, or a confused person. So right. that really stuck with me. I'm, I was very fortunate to see that and learn that and, and really incorporate it right away. And then that started to make a lot of sense to what I was seeing in the classrooms and the stories the guys would, would tell me. And once you can create an environment where people are uh, comfortable telling their stories, I mean, in 10 months, I try to get them to tell some pretty hard felt stories, and then we publish them and make them public. So, mm -hmm. you know, as far as I know, we're the only journal in the country that has consistently published a journal from a prison for free um, in the last 10 years, 11 years. Wow. So, so and that's called 4 p.m. count, and you can go to jimreese.org and find out um, probably more information than you want to about that. But um, we give those away for educational purposes. So going back to those teachers, I think, yeah, I think the guys in my class, and, and it always goes back to that and just really listening to their stories and realizing, like I think you kind of touched on it earlier too, that – hey, you know, I'm a student just like they are in class, and I'm going to learn from them. And uh, you, you leave that ego out the door, and if you can realize that, uh, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Now, I want to jump back in here and, and um, ask a question. Other than obvious geography, do you like what's the, what are the differences and similarities you see between classrooms in prison and classrooms in college? The differences, and you said the differences, right? Right, the differences. Or differences and similarities, either one. You know, I don't, once I, there's not a lot, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, most of the classrooms that I've been in in prisons look just like the classrooms that I teach at in here, except I don't have the social media. Right, uh, right. Actually, in the, state, in the state prisons I taught, you could actually use the internet. Um, but the federal prison, you can't. Um, I could use it. Um, you know, to bring up YouTube videos at the state prison, at the federal prison, you can't. Right. Um, those are two big differences. Um, but one thing I did did do right away after a couple of years, um, I started incorporating the same kind of um, expressive writing exercises that I was incorporating in prison as I, and, and, then, and then doing that in my college classrooms too, because there's no socioeconomic boundaries here when it comes to dysfunction, right? I, I mean, everybody, if you've got more than uh, one person in your family, you've got some dysfunction. Right. And, you know. <laughs> right. That's a good one. 
and you know what? We're all criminals. Some of us got caught, some God. of us didn't. Amen. You know? So if you understand those kinds of things, um, and you're really interested in in people writing from the heart, um, I think it's good to incorporate all those things. So, I, you know, I don't make any, there's not a lot of differences for me now. You know, there's different rules, obviously, um, when I'm in certain classrooms and if somebody's disruptive, um, you try to deal with it the best way you can right. at either place, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, so let's swing back around to the, the, to the, the collegiate the academic area here. Um, tell us about, I'm, I'm interested, what, what is, what, what goes into and what is the Great Plains Writers Tour? Oh, cool. Yeah, we have um, writers that come throughout the country that come to Mount Marty and, um, and musicians at times as well. So um, that just, you know, I have them give presentations. What that, you know, it used to be just you come and read out loud from your book and answer questions and stuff like that. But in the last few years, you know, what I found the students really like is more um, craft talks, similar to what we're doing here If we, when we get into the business of writing and things like that, how they can really learn some stuff. So now I really try to have writers, when they come here, talk about how they got to be where they're at yeah. uh, and then give specific craft talks as opposed to just reading out loud from a new, from a new book. You know, I think that we can get so much more out of that. And give them a platform where they can ask those questions like, what's so cool about what you guys are doing on your show? You know, your last podcast, the real recent one you guys had with the New York agent. I mean, those are just great questions. And, and it's such a good, valuable thing for listeners in the country because, it, if you you know, a lot of beginning writers aren't going to feel comfortable asking certain questions. Right. Um, and, and so they just, it's all this big mystery. It's like, okay, how are we going to learn about the business unless we ask the people that are, you know, that are running the business or that are, are, have, are, are part of it and, and learn about how they succeeded and, and didn't. Um, you know, let me give you an example. Like Alan Eskins was uh. here a couple of years ago. He, so he just wrote, you know, he's written since 2014. I think he has like six novels out right now. Damn. But Alan Eskins, his first book, which is being made into a movie right now, Mm-hmm. It's called The Life We Bury. Um, he was a criminal defense attorney, and uh, he's not anymore because he's making um, making enough money now uh, with his books. But this all started in 2014. Now, he had 150, a list of 150 agents mm-hmm. on, a, on a sheet of paper, and he, just agents. Um, and he got to, I think, 148 until somebody picked up his book. So, you know... That was, he said it was getting pretty discouraging. He was ready to give up. But now look, he, that book got picked up. They sold it within, I think, a couple weeks. And now it's being made into a movie. It's a great book. It's one that I teach my students all the time. Uh, again, it's called The Life We Bury. And I just think it's a great example of, you know, then I, so I'm asking him a lot about this. And he was really upfront about things and, and, and the business. And so that, those are stories that I can take into the classroom and share with my students. And that's what we're looking at. So, you know, maybe in a couple of years, we'll get you guys here. We'll do a live or we'll do a podcast from school and we can do some music and talk about everything. I would love to do that. Yeah, well, I will be there. And I know I'm a daisy. Oh, yeah. Than I am. oh so yeah. We will be there. We'll be there with with in, with spades, bro. Um, how do what's the ritual look like when you do you have to go through a certain series of actions or be in a certain place when you get ready to write? It, it interests me, like the the ritualistic, almost uh, superstitious if you have that uh, activities or, or a thought process you go through to get you into that zone. Yeah, I don't, you know, I just try to sit down and do it. You know, I mean, I've got to just remind myself it's work and put my butt in the chair. Um, one, I guess the, the one thing that I have gotten really good at is when I do have an idea, you know, to write it down or to talk into my phone immediately. If I'm, you know, I'm always having have my phone with me. Right. I don't have any rituals or any routines except I'm up late usually every night. I mean, I've got two daughters and, uh, you know, we're all busy running and running. So I wish I right. could say I get up at a certain time. I know Ted Kuzer, I learned, you know, I went to school, uh, worked on my PhD with him. And, um, when he won the Pulitzer prize and became United States poet laureate, you know, and he would get up routinely every morning at like four, four thirty, And he still does that. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm not a morning person. I, I, I do more work at night and, 
and that just works for me. But I have gotten into the routine that when I do have an idea, I make sure I write it down and, and just try to keep a schedule and keep, you know, make goals for myself. That's the biggest thing I learned with this book of bone chalk is, uh-huh. um, I just, I just said, okay, I got to quit talking about this. Um, you know, I think I spent more years talking about being a writer than sitting down and writing. We all did. We all yep. did. Yep. <laughs> you know, so I've got to remind myself, you know, now that I'm in my forties, you know, it's like, Hey, whoa, what happened to my thirties? I got, I got to get, get going here. You know, like, so I've got goals. And, um, I, you know, and I just have to set those goals and say, what do I need to do to, to reach them and, and then get to work. Now you write poetry as well. And I mean, just off the top of your head, who are some of your favorite all time poets living or dead? Oh, um, George Bill Deer, Ted Kuzer. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I've got the list could go on and on and on. You know how right. it is. There's yeah. Some, those are two that I've learned a lot from. I, you know, I bring those two up specifically. Um, you know, I'm reading Jeffrey McDaniel's new book right now. It's, it is fantastic. Um, and that was somebody for some unknown reason. I had no idea who he was until recently. And his stuff is just amazing. Um, but yeah, those are, these are some guys that I've learned some stuff from. Uh, William Clefcorn was the Nebraska state poet before he passed away. Um, a big influence in my life. Uh, really what he was doing with poetry and then moving into prose too. Um, and same with Kuzer. Um, it was, you know, I, I'll bring up his name a couple of times because I learned a lot from him one time, you know, what was amazing about this guy is here he is, he won the Pulitzer prize and he, um, you know, he's a United States poet laureate and he's still coming to these readings, these college readings that students are given in the graduate program when he's in town. And I thought that's pretty cool. And, uh, so it was my turn to read and he happened to be there and he came up to me afterwards or I came up to him. I can't remember. And he said, you know, Jim, that last poem you read, that's an entire Willa Cather novel. <laughs> and, then he, and then he just smiled and walked away. Like, what is, what is, that, is that good or bad, man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I got it, you know, and we were friends and, and we talked a lot about it. And he's like, look, man. And he's like, poetry's not the highest art form. And I wasn't writing it because it, I thought it was. I just was writing it because I thought it was a little easier. And uh, I'd picked a genre, and I had to stick with it in grad school because it's competitive. You know, you got to get books published if you want to get a job. And and so that's what I was doing. But it made a lot of sense. I was in, I'm a narrative poet, and I really like storytelling. So that's what I did with this book, and I have been working on as my daughters are getting older, you know, I just kept working on one essay and the next one. And, and it's, it makes a lot more sense for me, I think, to write nonfiction. And, and honestly, again, I say this every show, people don't think that you, we got, we, beforehand, we set this thing up. One of the questions from what you were just talking about is, is on my list here. And, and I ask those who do write both um, prose and poetry. Uh, do you find that writing poetry influences and helps you write prose or vice versa that doing both kind of flexes your brain in different directions yeah um i think the poem yeah definitely i mean i think first though you just need to write and not worry about what it's going to be right you know um another thing i learned from ted kuzer here's another thing you know he would say a poem has to have some magic or lift in it Mm -hmm. you know it can't be just i would used to tell my students you know a poem's like a snapshot and it is but what else is going on? There's got to be something. And I would hope a story ha- has to have the same thing too, right? Right. So, you know, now I'm looking at things and, you know, and I do think about that. What's this going to be? Is this going to be a poem or prose? And and then, you know, and one thing as a writer, I'm thinking, what, what's going to what's gonna reach the largest audience? Right. And, and it's going to be nonfiction. I mean, it is, as opposed to poetry. Poetry is such, you know, you still say the word, poetry to somebody and they kind of put their head down and look away because they don't even know how to respond. Right. Right. And I, what, what, what struck me is when you said that you love to write narrative poetry and that you love to write stories. Um, so it, even though they're snapshots, do you find that you, do you use the same kind of technique in writing nonfiction and still telling a story just more lyrically when you write it in poetry? Yeah. I mean, I used to write just all voice driven poems I mean, I, David Lee is another big fan of mine. Um, yeah. He was Utah's first poet laureate. His, all his poems about rural America and pig farmers. And 
and things like that. You know, these are just guys talking. Right. And that's really where I got my start too, listening to him. And I thought, wow, I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, if you can have a good ear and listening to people, um, you know, I think that that's what intrigues me, you know, and then take, but if you can condense certain moments and then bring them to life again later, I, mm-hmm. does that make sense? So what they're yeah. a poem and then you take that poem and you expand it into something. And, and now critics are saying, Oh, this, this nonfiction book of yours is very poetic. I'm like, well, and that's, uh, that's awful nice of them to say. Um, but a lot of them started as poems. And then I just took mm-hmm. them and said, okay, what's the bigger story here? What, right. what am I really trying to say instead of condensing it down to this, you know, this one page. So that's what I'm doing right now. I mean, I've got notes that I just wrote this week. I'm like, okay, make this poem into an essay, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, That's a, that's an interesting. I mean, that's something we haven't heard on the show before, which is great because I usually hear about people taking nonfiction and filtering it down into a poem. Whereas you, I mean, you might be processing it might be nonfiction and then work its way into poetry and then come back out of it in a in a poetic kind of way. You know, I think that that's a that's pretty pretty fascinating as well. But I think you were saying something that was really important just from a creative side, and then I want to jump to the a, a business question here, um, but. You reminded me when you said, you know, you can look at something and, yeah, it's great or, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, but what else is going on? It reminds me of the composer John Carigliano. Uh, I saw a uh, kind of a master class with him, and he said a piece of music can be beautiful, but there has to also be an and and something has to come after that and for it to be to, for it to be kind of meaningful and, and have more more legs. That's kind of what I'm what I'm hearing from you. But we've spent a lot of time talking about creativity. And so this is why that's why I wanted to kind of move off it. So once you've created a piece, first of all, where's the benchmark in your head that tells you that something is ready to be sent off or to be published? Um, where at what point are you able to take your hands off of it? Do you, is it the case of abandoning things? Or do you ever feel that sense of completion? Well, I don't know. I, I look back at my last book of poetry, and and I've told my students this. I can look at that and go, oh, why did I do that? I could go back and revise those poems still. And that I think, I don't think they're ever done. Um, you know, Agreed. You, you, Agreed. You, find, you find places in the stories where you wish you would have added something, maybe. That hasn't happened quite yet with this new book, and hopefully it doesn't happen. <laughs> as much you know but i get ideas you know it's like oh i forgot about this why didn't i say this and and you know i remember just as far as the manuscript i remember being in school and and again a teacher saying um you know once you have 20 to 40 poems start looking for a publisher 20 to 40 poems published and so you're here i remember hearing that and uh going well oh okay we got a lot to do you know, right. I mean, we've got yeah. four years to do this or four to six years, but I didn't want to stay in grad school for six years. I'd already <laughs> been in school for six years, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to get done, you know. So I remember hearing that. And you know what? That was Kuzir that said that. He's like, I remember at one of his workshops, he said that. And I was like, wow, this is going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um, then you start sending out stuff, you know, and you, you hope somebody picks them up. And and then I guess when you're ready to send them out, it's kind of, you know, you got, and then you're just you keep working, you know, and and you hopefully when you're the book is ready, if you get a contract, you spend some time revising. Um, and I think that works for poetry or prose. Word. And and then you, then I guess you know I, I don't know I mean right now I, I'm in the midst of just doing the business end of this, you know, just the marketing and and this will be going on for a year at least, you know. I mean I'm All right. I'm learning so much and I'm not gonna just pretend this book has legs of its own and is going to take off, you know? I mean, it's got to go, and it, the only person who's going to push it is is me and the editors, and, and and so that's what I'm really doing right now. So I'm not going thinking about how can I revise anything right now. I'm focused on how can I promote this book and and talk about what I love, and, and also then I am working on my next book, though, so I have to, if I don't write something, I'm going to get I'll go crazy. It's like being a runner or an athlete. You know, if you don't go to the gym, I mean, I haven't been to the gym in two days. I've got kind of a cold and it's like, God, yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it. You know, it's like that that restlessness. And it's the same thing with writing. So I've got to create something all the time. Otherwise I'm, I just feel like I'm not doing my, 
not doing my job. Well, it feels like there's there's different seasons we have to go through as creative people, right? There's the, the time where the ideas are kind of growing and and uh, it's that seed phase. And then we're in the part where we're actually creating the work. And then we go into this period of time, if we're actually doing it the right way, where we have to promote and we have to market. We have to kind of talk ad nauseum about our work, you know, to different audiences to try to get them to, to you know, try to convince them or try to get our work into the hands of people who can find it useful. And... Um, how, what's your what's your impression of that that kind of period been like uh, so far? I mean, what do you do you find some sort of um, do you find some sort of I guess fulfillment from the from the marketing side? I always have a hard time with it, but I know that it's the right thing to be doing. But uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your point of view. I mean, are you is this something that you you enjoy doing? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I mean, okay, look, I grew up in Omaha in uh the 80s so we're like the hub of telemarketing so that was the job you had as soon as you could get a job you're i mean i sold canadian lottery tickets i sold <laughs> omaha steaks i sold dismemberment insurance you name it i sold it over the phone so you know what i hated those jobs but i'll tell you what they came in handy they come yep. in handy i remember if you can sell dismemberment insurance you can sell writing and poetry Truth. That needs to be written somewhere officially. It does. <laughs> I'm serious. If you can sell dismemberment insurance, that's too much on a t-shirt, but maybe a bumper sticker. <laughs> now, it, it, and again, like you're bringing up all these real hot topics that 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 that's that just get me in the mind juices flowing because the practicality of your language and it's not complaining at all, which again is refreshing. But when you say like it's my this is work, this is my job, I put my butt in the chair and I do the you know, I do the labor. Now I've got the book deal. I've often talked with Amade about how uh many when you get lucky enough, and it's not I hate that word luck. When you've worked hard enough to get a uh, a contract and you sign it, I've had uh peers who then sat back and put their hands behind their head and said, Now let the money roll in. And that's not the way it works. That's not the way you get out there and you you nailed it on the head when you said nobody can sell me better than me. And no, that's not the slogan of Reno. But when when you're talking about like what your book is about, you know, the passion behind your editor, your publisher, obviously they're going to be close cohorts in this because they would not have invested the time and money in you if they didn't believe the work would, 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 was worth reading. But no one's going to share it with the same passion as you. Now, your publisher sent me Bone Chalk and with it came this awesome uh, like leaflet about the for uh, immediate release bone chalk and it's like all the it's the synopsis it's the whole it's the whole shebang all the you know the pricing and all the different places you can find the book and who's involved the press kit you know you just <laughs> these are things that people don't talk about you know when folks say like well give me the basics of it it's not a four mile long email it's your press kit um, as you've what are some of the surprisingly I won't say easy some of the surprisingly fun uh, aspects of marketing and one of those parts that aren't bad, but just you didn't expect maybe something that stumbled you along the way trying to figure out this whole marketing angle. Well, here's something funny. Um, you know, I was never on Facebook until about six months ago. Right. So I, I mean, I complained about it. I hated it. Um, for, and I, but I knew in the back of my head, I was like, this is such a marketing gold mine, but I stayed off of Twitter I, I got on Twitter about a year ago. I stayed off of Facebook until about six months ago. And then the publisher said, hey, Jim, uh, you need to get on Facebook. Look, you know, that's just it. And uh, you, you decide what you want to put on there, how personal you want to be. But we need you on there. So I did with a lot of encouragement from some of my friends, some of my close friends. Uh, you know, I just was paranoid about it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, who, I got, you know what I mean. I mean, it's just who knows. You know, it's the it's, angry ex-girlfriend finder. That's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm glad Facebook wasn't around when I was in college. Let's just say that. Yeah, uh, or, or cell phones or videos. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of goofy things or dumb things I did that I don't need somebody uh, videotaping or, or, or something appearing. But, um, right. yeah, I mean, it's such a cool thing doing that and being on it. You know, I some, like lately in the last couple of weeks, I'll post reviews and another review and then i think oh this is too much nobody's you know i mean what's too much and you try to stagger it um i'm learning the ins and outs of that what's going to get people's attention i mean if i have a video of something mm -hmm. or a picture of me in a prison 
which I have a couple of, you know, people love that. Right. Uh, you go to Jim Reese, you can see that. Um, but it's, um, you know, the, it, so that's a whole learning process for me. Um, I try to send out something to about five people every night. It's the yep. press kit that you're talking about yep. um, in different variations. Like I want to come visit your college or university. I want to, you know, would you be interested in reviewing the book? So I had a long list of places to send the book out. And, and really what I learned from that, I mean, some places like like Barnes & Noble, Discover New Writers series. I mean, for them to even consider that, they have to have the book in their hands six months yep. in advance. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I didn't know that. You know, and it's and this is a hardcover book, so there was no advanced reader copies. I mean, it, I had digital copies. Right. So another thing, you know, how many people will even look at your book to review it if it's only a digital copy? So that's that was a little frustrating. But, you know, I'm still sending, sending, sending that out because officially it won't come out probably until this – it won't ship from Amazon for a couple more days. So by next week, whenever this airs, people should be able to go on there. But um, the release date shifted. Um, Amazon had it, and then they sold the copies they had. Then it said it wasn't going to come back out for another few weeks. So that's a good problem to have. But um, you can get the book at uh, you know um, by going to jimreese.org or going to Amazon and going to um, uh, Stephen F. Austin State University Press. Um, which is part of the Texas Book Consortium. Yeah, we, you can just find it by googling Jim Reese and and Bone Chalk, and there's lots of outlets. But really, just learning all about those and and then how to connect with people and and you know having things ready. Like today, somebody right away is like, okay, well, what's your you know what's your price range for this? And you just have to be ready to you know you have to know. Okay, if I'm flying to New York, how much is that going to cost? What you know, and I do you know you have to be ready for that. You guys have been in the music business, so you know what it's like to go on the road and yep. and and how do you how do you deal with all the logistics? You all, I, one, the I used to feel um, snobby or haughty for saying this with the synonyms, but. Um, you have to kind of look at your book release like a movie release. And what I mean by that is building that hype, um, I would say a year to eight months, at least six months before your book comes out. You mean you really, the way you're doing it is exactly the way I think that the, that it, 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 it works best. Uh, and hitting five people a day. I love that. Having all the basics done, your budgeting. And this is the business of, of art. You know, this is the stuff that we're trying to tear into. And it, that's why it's, it, I was so psyched to have you on the show because you, you're already doing this stuff and you need to get people excited about it. Part of that is getting out in front of people. Part of that, I'm mean, a huge part. Again, is the, it, Amade and I hammer on this whole, what is networking in the art world? And it, the answer is, it's the same thing as in any other vocation. But like I joked right before we got on the show, it's not about going to a bar and getting drunk, talking about the book you're going to write. Yeah. You know, it's not, pro, it's not leaving bars out, but I mean, you, you really want to find and then find angles and, and venues that people don't typically go to thinking these people might buy my book. You know, um, it, it's it, it, t- it takes again, it's, it's, you know, with any other job in the world, you don't work one day and go, all right, well, that's it. And of course, if it's the day before you retire, that's not true. But right with writing, you get one book done. And do, let me ask you this. Do you find that now you, ha- you have bone chalk out? All right. It's about to relaunch. And, you know, you have to get out there in people's faces again. You mentioned you're also writing your next book. Does writing your next book help you deal with the anxiety of what's coming and getting out there on the road like a distraction? Yeah, a little bit. I'm noticing it's good to have a plan. Um, right. You know, when the, I, you know, when this came out, I was like, okay, what next? Because I've got a new and collected book of poetry that's supposed to come out in the next year from New York Quarterly Books, and that's that's cool. Um, but you know, I'm really also just really focusing on this next book of nonfiction, and what can I do with that? And also, how am I going to promote the poetry book? So once I get some dates for that, you know, I'll start the marketing for that. But um, right now it's really focused. I'm really focused on marketing for this, but then also what's my next project. I have to have something else and thinking about something else. So, I mean, I'm doing a book on crime and punishment. The, what I've noticed in this book is everybody, you know, they really like the mascot thing. They love the stories that make them laugh because, um, I don't know. I think I'm pretty funny. Um, <laughs> And uh, there is some pretty funny stuff in here. I love making people laugh. But, you know, then all of a sudden, right in the middle, there's this, you know, there's this huge essay about crime and how it affected me. And, um, 
which which was uh, and what I learned from it. And so, but that's that was a whole another manuscript. And the publisher, one of the publishers that was interested in the book said, you know, we're going to ask you for some more stuff. Do you have something? And I said, well, yeah, I've got this whole other book I'm working on. So I took a manuscript that was roughly I don't know 150 pages or so, and I and I condensed it down to those 33 pages. Um, and found an angle to tell the story. I got rid of tons of the statistics and the academic angle and really right. wrote about how crime has affected me since I was a kid, and that worked for this collection. But I, un I also understand how important that is and how interesting and intriguing it is to the public. So what I've been doing in the background for the last two and a half, almost three years, is I've been doing ride-alongs with the police in my city. So I want to see crime on the front end. And... Um, and then continue to write about my work in prisons and then just juxtapose the two and combine the two and, and not with really any agenda, just like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. And, yeah. and because yeah. you know what, and, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I went into it and I, I said this to the, the cops I was with, I was like, you know, for the first six months I was looking for you guys to screw up because <laughs> that's, that's what I was seeing and, and listening to in the media. And uh, I'll tell you what, they didn't screw up and I've never seen uh, a, more professional people in my life. Um, it, it's amazing what they uh, do and have to put up with. I mean, I would have, I would have lost my cool the first couple times I was with them. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I and I was a criminal justice major for a little while, so I've just learned to, you know, I'm. It, it's great because they've given me freedom to just be their shadow, and I and I record just everything that I see. You know, when something happens and what I'm learning, um, you know. What's interesting is the police are still like the, um, I think it's number seven top rated job in the nation still. And the amount of police corruption that actually goes on, and this is like a Pew Research or Gallup study, you can look the, this up, but um, it's actually 0.0002 something. You know, oh. so there's a couple bad things that happen and that get played over in the media all the time, but. Um, if you take into all the millions or billions of interactions that police have with individuals and on a yearly basis, right. uh, it's, it's a, su a superior field. And it's just interesting. There's a great book called, that I kind of got the idea from. It's called um, A Thousand Naked Strangers by an EMT guy. I think he lives in L.A. I can't remember his name offhand, but that was just interesting because he would just take you into every one of his calls and it was like, OK, cool, you know, it's kind of yeah. like. You know, it's it's a live PD, but in writing form. But also, right. you know, I by doing the prison work and talking about that more, you know, I, I'm able to write about it and take people into a world that they don't, um, that they can't go into. And it's right. not sensationalized. It's not fiction. There's lots of fiction books about prison. There's lots of documentaries that are sensationalized. But the real thing of what's going on, I mean, there's some really kick-ass programs in the country. Um, and the more we can incorporate college and education into the prison system, um, the better off we're going to be. I'm going to I'm going to get academic here for just a second. I mean, right. some things listeners need to realize is that one out of every three people of working age in the United States has some sort of criminal record. OK, and one thing that people used to tell me over and over when I started this was, well, why should I care about prisoners? Lock them up, throw them, throw away the key. You know, yes. this is just a waste of my tax dollars. And um, so if that's all you're concerned about and that's what your attitude is. There was a five-year bipartisan study done by the Rand Corporation that said every dollar spent on prison education equates to four or five dollar taxpayer savings. Mm -hmm. So if that's all you're concerned about, then then you ought to be concerned about educating people. Um, we had a warden when I first started. He he would always say, "Hey, these guys are coming to a neighborhood near you. You want them educated or not?" Yeah, yeah. Made a lot of sense. It is. Well, the, the bone chalk, I mean, that's the whole, the, the positivity and the realism of it. And I love, again, it's like Mike said earlier in the show about the composer that said there's got to be an and and then something after the and. When, Jim, you just said that, like, you, you, you'll you write something serious and then you'll mingle humor in there. I think that is the and. Uh, I think that that's what makes, right. I think that's what makes the, the, the hard stuff easy to read or easier to read. Because if you're just hammered with the, with the bad stuff the whole time, you're going to be, suicidally depressed by about midway through the book you know yeah. and so the, the, to, the fact yeah. that you the fact that you put humor in there that's not um disrespectful i mean again well, it, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to brag about you here i mean it's you, you the, the elegance that you weave humor in there is lightly self-depreciating especially with the mascot one i love that story but it's it's 
you know, it, it's it. There's an art to the humor, like you know, David Sedaris is one that comes to mind. Oh, yeah. like, you know, that, that I I got that kind of feel. You know, I don't like saying you sound like, but it that the ease of the the, the of your ability to write uh, is astounding. Uh, well, I, it, I appreciate you saying that. It's so funny that you said that because I'm staring. I'm in my office right now, and right by my door is um, a letter from David Sedaris. Listen to how cool this guy is. Okay, so 2008, I'd been teaching here for two years, and I had. I had used his book, um, one of his books, and then Dress Your Family and Corduroy and Denim came out. Mm-hmm. And that is a great book to teach college freshmen because they'll come up after a week or two and they're like, this book's really funny. I've never bought a book ever in my life, but I went out and bought another one of his books. Well, that usually takes about a month, but <laughs> I mean, my students just love his work. And I, so I got a hold of his agent and uh, I had a book of poetry that just came out too. So I said, can I send him these letters for my students and then my book? And she goes, yeah, um, we'll send him the letters, but we're not going to send him your book. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, and then he wrote my students back a letter, and it was just so cool to, to see a guy at that the height. Well, I don't even know. I mean, he's still just awesome. His last book that came out, I think, is his best, Calypso. Um, yeah, but, I just you know, bought that. And you know what? He will talk about this, and it and it makes sense. And I've been teaching his work, and it's really what I tried to do. So you're the first person that said that. I I, I was hoping that somebody might say that someday. That hey, your work reminds me of Sedaris. That's a huge compliment um, in my book because uh, you know it's what I was working for. I mean, I I think if Sedaris was here and what he said in the letter, and he's written, you know, I've had the good fortune of you know writing a couple times to him. Um, and him responding. Um, but if he were here, he would say, you know, you got to mix that humor with the seriousness, right? It's the yep. old Shakespeare uh, themes, right? We can't, mm-hmm. we can't just have humor. We can't just have all seriousness. And so when I write it, even about the crime essay, and when I go into St. Quentin, I mean, that place is so bizarre. I mean, it's 432 acres. You go in there, I mean, once you get through the, the main, one of the first gates, then an inmate picks you up in a car, and I'm looking at this guy going, what is going on here? And then mm-hmm. we go down. I mean, we go. it's like you're driving through a big, huge neighborhood. And then you get down to the Sally Port. And outside the Sally Port, there's a guy selling T-shirts that look like Jack Daniels labels. And they say, San Quentin, pen number one, sell brewed pruno. <laughs> so I go up to the guy. and I'm. That's in your book. I, I, yeah, yeah I, I go up to the guy, and I'm cocky. I go, I'm like, so let me get this straight. You're selling a T-shirt that promotes a crime within the prison to make money for your honor guard program. And he says, yeah. I said, all right, give me two of them then. <laughs> and, uh, I got in the car and I showed it to the, to the inmate who was driving. I said, you want one of these? And he just looked at me. He's like, hell no, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I was just being honest, you know, I mean, yeah. like, there, there's so many goofy, weird things. That's just such a bizarre place but also a very very great place as far as what they're doing with education and programming there so I w- i'm really excited to go back as soon as i can so this is a pretty fascinating thing so it, in denver right now or especially in jefferson county which is the the county i'm in here it's uh it's pretty fascinating because we because of some budgetary issues and something not passing they're in a position as of just a few days ago they're starting to let inmates go because they don't have adequate funding and things. And so you're starting to see this panic in the community um, about it, which I think is very strategic, but you know, that's another, that's another show. Um, But I I think the, the idea that you hit on really early, which is so, so important, which is any of us could have ended up in this position with a couple of, of decisions that just, you know, you make one decision that it kind of trickles down into something else and something else. And suddenly you found yourself in a position where this is where you're going to go now, you know, and so these are people essentially like us who've had to now go through this kind of crucible situation from what I've heard. And you would absolutely know about this more, much more than I would, that it's very difficult for once someone has been to prison, it's hard to erase that, that experience probably really transforms a person and possibly not only for, not always for the better, I would imagine. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think it takes seven years until you're officially off paper, too. I mean, there's so many things that follow you um, and then regulations if you once you are locked up, you know, I mean, it's in rules and things you can't do ever again. Um, You know, so it's 
yeah, I mean, thank God I have a good family and people that cared about me or care about me. Um, otherwise, it kind of would have been a slippery slope a couple times. It's um, and I think that goes yeah. for so many people, and I think that's just the key to understanding that. You know, I mean, if you understand that, hey, we're just human beings. You know, every all of us make mistakes, and um, you know what? I mean, with everything going on right now, I just hope. I mean, I hope when my daughters get older and, you know, they're talking about politics when they're, you know, seven, eight years old. I mean, when Trump was elected president, my daughter was on her way to school that day and she said, is he really going to build a wall around our town? That's if there's anything good about what's going on right now, it's that kids are talking about politics. And, and I hope to God that some good comes out of everything. Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. We want to say thank you to Jim for an amazing interview. Thank you. We loved having you. You can find him on Twitter at reallyhappyjim or at jimreese.org. His new book, Bone Chalk, is available now. You can find Cliff Brooks at cliffbrooks.com. Also, southerncollectiveexperience.com. You can find me at michaelamide.com or worldpoetryopenmic.com. The music for this episode was provided by the fantastic Justin Johnson. You can find him at justinjohnsonlive.com. The goal of this podcast is to give you ideas and tactics that you can apply to your own creative life. And we go out of our way to try to bring you applicable things that you can apply right away. Remember to be courageous. Do the hard work. Conquer your obstacles creatively. Learn to trust your heart, for it's easy to lose your path in this business of music and poetry.